Do not be ashamed, then, of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. From the second epistle of St. Paul to Timothy, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, This past week, uh, Cody Strecker and I went to the Anglican Family Symposium in Northern Virginia. And I met there a woman who truly inspired me. I'll just tell you why. In the course of our conversation, in a small group session, she said something like this. I don't remember it verbatim, so I'm going to give it to you like this. She said, I've been separated from my husband against my wishes for the last several years. He has since remarried and has a child, something we could never do. But I still believe that I am still married to him. And because of that, I have lived in a state of something like singlehood for these many years. I still, she said, draw strength and grace from my marriage. I still believe it is God's will for me to be faithful to my husband even though he has abandoned me. Some days it is literally so painful it is like being crucified. The pain is so unbearable. But Jesus grants me the grace to endure it. She spoke of how the church had come around her Inviting her to family lunches after Sunday services, how one family had a big dog that she loved, how much of a comfort it was to her. She spoke of the struggles of living in this identity. But she was not unstable or delusional. Instead, she was an eloquent and passionate Christian. She radiated with the Lord's grace. I tell you this because... This Christian was a witness to the power of unashamedly suffering for the gospel in a situation so intolerable that she could not bear it on her own. She taught all of us something of the holy calling of which Paul writes in today's epistle reading, a holy calling in which we are saved, not by virtue of our works, but by God's own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. The truth is, in living out, in the living out of a holy calling, this particular woman is a living hero. Now, some would say something like this, lady, you need to move on. Life is too short to be so unhappy. Don't you want to get married again? Don't you want to experience the fulfillment of your hopes for a good marriage? And I think, I'm just guessing, but I think she would say something like this, I have moved on to the joy of the cross, to the fulfillment of all my hopes in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul, like most ancient Christians, could bear sufferings precisely because he found identity in Christ crucified and not the affections of even his closest friends. In fact, he believed this so strongly that it was his conviction that he had, in fact, in truth, been crucified with Jesus. That he had been so identified with this self-offering as to be wedded 
as in a marriage to the Lord, as a member of the church, his bride. This letter which we read today, Paul's second epistle to Timothy, was written from Paul's prison cell in Rome. You can only imagine what that would have been like. To try to sleep with iron chains around your wrists and ankles. To put up with constant taunts. He knows that he will ultimately die as a witness to the gospel. And so he faces the suffering of anticipating an uncertain death. He faces the suffering and the shame of chains, alluding to the fact that some of his followers in his final journey had been so ashamed of his chains as to abandon him. You can imagine what that's like, right? Would you accompany someone who'd been condemned? He mentions two of them by name, Phagellus and Hermogenes, probably quite notable disciples, who simply walked away from him. Only one, Onesiphorus, had followed him from Ephesus all the way to Rome, where he had searched him out and had served him. I just want you to imagine that for a moment. Being abandoned by all the people you love dearly except for one friend. To be in chains for the sake of the gospel which you delivered to them and they walk away in shame. Remember this, that Paul had willingly submitted to these chains. He didn't have to be imprisoned. He appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he went. He could have been released. Many certainly believed that he had lost his mind, that he was unstable or delusional. And indeed, at certain points in the New Testament, he rants (laughs) to such an extent that he might seem crazy, but he's not. He has decided to suffer for the sake of of the gospel, and that is enough. Simply put, to suffer for the sake of the gospel simply does not make sense, even to many Christians today. There are those who look at the suffering of Christians for the sake of the gospel. They look at martyrs. They look at missionaries who have become poor voluntarily, people who take uncomfortable political positions that will mean rejection by their friends and rejection by those who they even think whose opinion matters. There are those who reject wealth or status, and they think, all of this for a God who even allows suffering to happen? Better to have pleasures in this life that we know than to suffer unnecessarily for the life to come that we do not know. Still others are convinced that one can be a Christian and completely avoid suffering. We often fall into this, even if it's just wishful thinking. We console ourselves with niceties and half-truths, believing and believing that we are making ourselves stronger. We actually simply make the gospel, or at least the way that we believe it, weaker. I would say it this way. Most, Most American Christians have no way to think about suffering that doesn't do horrible violence to the gospel. To be sure, we like to think about other people suffering with dignity and grace. But when even moderate troubles come for us, 
we struggle to think about it properly. Have you ever noticed that? A friend of you might get horrible terminal cancer and you think, well, I can understand that, but if it was me, I don't know what I'd do. It's horrid. And then there are those who believe against every shred of biblical evidence to the contrary that true believers will be preserved from suffering entirely. Friends, the lies of the so-called prosperity gospel are fresh off the boat from hell, from the deceiver and the accuser, hateful little love letters. How many have abandoned the gospel when suffering comes, believing that suffering is incompatible with Christian faith, believing, yes, that even God has rejected them because they suffer? How many times have you and I even believed that about ourselves? Paul writes to Timothy two things about the relationship between the gospel and suffering that I want to spend time with this morning. And I think they're important for how we see Christian suffering. The first is an appeal to Timothy, begging Timothy this. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So here's what he's saying to Timothy. Over and above all those others who are so ashamed of me that they had to walk away. They couldn't even bear to see me in chains. They couldn't bear to see the Lord's chosen apostles suffer. Not only don't be ashamed of me, but don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he calls Timothy to share in that suffering. Suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul is asking Timothy, who we can understand to be back in Ephesus, surrounded by those in Ephesus who are ashamed of him, to neither be ashamed of Paul, nor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's bigger than that. The Lord here is described as having a testimony. In the Greek it is marturion, a word from which we get the word martyr. This is a reminder that the testimony of the gospel is not a message of joy without suffering, but a message of joyful suffering. Can you imagine that joyful suffering? Paul further writes, not that he is a prisoner of the Romans, which he is, or of anyone else, but of the Lord Jesus himself. Paul refuses to be categorized according to the dictatorship of the obvious. He has instead abandoned himself to divine providence. He is committed to this offering of his will to the Father. So to him, the oppressive chains are recategorized, reimagined as the chains proper to a true servant of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Think all the shameful things and saying, these are proper to one who is a servant of Jesus. It is from this viewpoint that he tells Timothy to share in that suffering. He's not telling him to take up chains. He's telling him to embrace what suffering will come to him. Not only the sufferings which Paul is experiencing, but the very sufferings of Jesus. That's a rather hopeful message when you consider it, isn't it? 
It says that no matter our circumstances or our sufferings, we can choose to reimagine them and recategorize them, not according to what is obvious, but according to their hidden meaning, that of being joined to the sufferings of Jesus, yes, even with joy. Not the kind of joy that's like, yay, I'm suffering. But the kind of joy that sees immense, immeasurable meaning and depth in all things. So not only can he reimagine suffering, but he believes that this suffering is a direct consequence of his appointment as an apostle and teacher of the gospel. St. Augustine once said something to the effect that we cannot expect to follow Jesus and avoid the cross. Then we must take it up. We must follow even unto death. I've known those in my time as a priest who've, uh, who've joined up and, and been ordained, and all of a sudden they think, it's so hard. And I want to say, well, what'd you expect? You took up a cross. They think it'll be an easy way to be a Christian. It's not at all. This message that Paul is setting before Timothy is quite clear. That suffering is a consequence proper to following Jesus. The understanding, again, is that one who has been joined to Christ has possession of everything that properly belongs to him, including his suffering. We sort of want to put a footnote that says, well, maybe. No, Paul says, it does come and it will come. Martin Luther once compared this bond of the Christian to Christ to marriage stating that in baptism, a kind of marital bond is established in which the recipient, being truly repentant, receives all that belongs to Christ. Listen to that. We we usually think that uh, to be repentant means that we'll avoid suffering. Martin Luther says not so. Even if you are joined to Christ in this marital bond, and, and especially if you're repentant, he says, a man can with confidence boast in Christ and say, mine are Christ's living, doing, speaking, his suffering and dying, mine as much as if I have lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Let me say that to you again. The one who has confidence in Christ will say this, will boast of this and say, Mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking, his suffering and dying, mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all all that is his bride's, and she all that is his. For the two have all things in common because they are one flesh, so Christ and the church are one spirit. I've now learned this through six pregnancies, that as much as I'm not pregnant, I bear some of that. Some of the cravings even, some of the pains, some of the... I've got a pain in my back. I don't know why. It's because everything that belongs to my wife is mine, and we are one flesh. And everything that belongs to my Lord is mine. We are one flesh. In the midst of this suffering... 
The Christian remembers that Jesus Christ in whom he has died and even more has been raised, has abolished death and made death of no effect. Jesus has rather brought everlasting life to us and not only that, but a kind of soundness, a purity of life that cannot be disrupted by suffering. Here's the message, friends. If we are convinced that the enemy death still reigns, suffering will be an utter disaster to us. It will knock us off course over and over again. It will cause us to despair even of heaven itself. But if we are convinced that death has been rendered useless and powerless in the resurrection of Jesus, suffering will actually serve to guard us to the day of resurrection as a seal upon our lives in Christ. As an assurance that he really does love and care for us. Are you in the midst of suffering today? The wonders of the marital embrace that is ours as Christians with our Lord Jesus Christ is that not only is what belongs to him belong to us, but what belongs to us belongs to him. You do not suffer alone. Jesus bears it as his own. In the name of the Father and of the Son. Do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. From the second epistle of St. Paul to Timothy, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, This past week, uh, Cody Strecker and I went to the Anglican Family Symposium in Northern Virginia. And I met there a woman who truly inspired me. I'll just tell you why. In the course of our conversation, in a small group session, she said something like this. I don't remember it verbatim, so I'm going to give it to you like this. She said, I've been separated from my husband against my wishes for the last several years. He has since remarried and has a child, something we could never do. But I still believe that I am still married to him. And because of that, I have lived in a state of something like singlehood for these many years. I still, she said, draw strength and grace from my marriage. I still believe it is God's will for me to be faithful to my husband, even though he has abandoned me. Some days it is literally so painful, it is like being crucified. The pain is so unbearable. But Jesus grants me the grace to endure it. She spoke of how the church had come around her, inviting her to family lunches after Sunday services, how one family had a big dog that she loved, how much of a comfort it was to her. She spoke of the struggles of living in this identity. But she was not unstable or delusional. 
Instead, she was an eloquent and passionate Christian. She radiated with the Lord's grace. I tell you this because this Christian was a witness to the power of unashamedly suffering for the gospel in a situation so intolerable that she could not bear it on her own. She taught all of us something of the holy calling of which Paul writes in today's epistle reading, a holy calling in which we are saved, not by virtue of our works, but by God's own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. The truth is, in, living out, in the living out of a holy calling, this particular woman is a living hero. Now, some would say something like this, Lady, you need to move on. Life is too short to be so unhappy. Don't you want to get married again? Don't you want to experience the fulfillment of your hopes for a good marriage? And I think, I'm just guessing, but I think she would say something like this. I have moved on to the joy of the cross, to the fulfillment of all my hopes in Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul like most ancient Christians, could bear sufferings precisely because he found identity in Christ crucified and not the affections of even his closest friends. In fact, he believed this so strongly that it was his conviction that he had, in fact, in truth, been crucified with Jesus. That he had been so identified with this self-offering as to be wedded, as in a marriage to the Lord, as a member of the church, his bride. This letter which we read today, Paul's second epistle to Timothy, was written from Paul's prison cell in Rome. You can only imagine what that would have been like. To try to sleep with iron chains around your wrists and ankles. To put up with constant taunts. He knows that he will ultimately die as a witness to the gospel. And so he faces the suffering of anticipating an uncertain death. He faces the suffering and the shame of chains, alluding to the fact that some of his followers in his final journey had been so ashamed of his chains as to abandon him. You can imagine what that's like, right? Would you accompany someone who'd been condemned? He mentions two of them by name, Phagellus and Hermogenes, probably quite notable disciples, who simply walked away from him. Only one, Onesiphorus, had followed him from Ephesus all the way to Rome, where he had searched him out and had served him. I just want you to imagine that for a moment. Being abandoned by all the people you love dearly except for one friend. To be in chains for the sake of the gospel which you delivered to them and they walk away in shame. Remember this, that Paul had willingly submitted to these chains. He didn't have to be imprisoned. He appealed to Caesar and to Caesar he went. He could have been released. Many certainly believed that he had lost his mind, that he was unstable or delusional, 
And indeed, at certain points in the New Testament, he rants <laughs> to such an extent that he might seem crazy, but he's not. He has decided to suffer for the sake of the gospel, and that is enough. Simply put, to suffer for the sake of the gospel simply does not make sense, even to many Christians today. There are those who look at the suffering of Christians for the sake of the gospel. They look at martyrs. They look at missionaries who have become poor voluntarily. People who take uncomfortable political positions that will mean rejection by their friends and rejection by those who they even think whose opinion matters. There are those who reject wealth or status, and they think, all of this for a God who even allows suffering to happen? Better to have pleasures in this life that we know than to suffer unnecessarily for the life to come that we do not know. Still others are convinced that one can be a Christian and completely avoid suffering. We often fall into this, even if it's just wishful thinking. We console ourselves with niceties and half-truths, believing and believing that we are making ourselves stronger. We actually simply make the gospel, or at least the way that we believe it, weaker. I would say it this way. Most, most American Christians have no way to think about suffering that doesn't do horrible violence to the gospel. To be sure, we like to think about other people suffering with dignity and grace. But when even moderate troubles come for us, we struggle to think about it properly. Have you ever noticed that? A friend of you might get horrible terminal cancer and you think, well, I can understand that, but if it was me, I don't know what I'd do. It's horrid. And then there are those who believe against every shred of biblical evidence to the contrary that true believers will be preserved from suffering entirely. Friends, the lies of the so-called prosperity gospel are fresh off the boat from hell, from the deceiver and the accuser. Hateful little love letters. How many have abandoned the gospel when suffering comes, believing that suffering is incompatible with Christian faith, believing, yes, that even God has rejected them because they suffer? How many times have you and I even believed that about ourselves? Paul writes to Timothy two things about the relationship between the gospel and suffering that I want to spend time with this morning. And I think they're important for how we see Christian suffering. The first is an appeal to Timothy, begging Timothy this, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So here's what he's saying to Timothy. Over and above all those others who are so ashamed of me that they had to walk away. They couldn't even bear to see me in chains. They couldn't bear to see the Lord's chosen apostles suffer. Not only don't be ashamed of me, but don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. And then he calls Timothy to share in that suffering. Suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul is asking Timothy, who we can understand to be back in Ephesus, surrounded by those in Ephesus who are ashamed of him, 
to neither be ashamed of Paul nor of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's bigger than that. The Lord here is described as having a testimony. In the Greek it is marturion, a word from which we get the word martyr. This is a reminder that the testimony of the gospel is not a message of joy without suffering, but a message of joyful suffering. Can you imagine that joyful suffering? Paul further writes, not that he is a prisoner of the Romans, which he is, or of anyone else, but of the Lord Jesus himself. Paul refuses to be categorized according to the dictatorship of the obvious. He has instead abandoned himself to divine providence. He is committed to this offering of his will to the Father, so to him the oppressive chains are recategorized, reimagined as the chains proper to a true servant of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Think all the, the shameful things and saying, these are proper to one who is a servant of Jesus. It is from this viewpoint that he tells Timothy to share in that suffering. He's not telling him to take up chains. He's telling him to embrace what suffering will come to him. Not only the sufferings which Paul is experiencing, but the very sufferings of Jesus. That's a rather hopeful message when you consider it, isn't it? It says that no matter our circumstances or our sufferings, we can choose to reimagine them and recategorize them, not according to what is obvious, but according to their hidden meaning, that of being joined to the sufferings of Jesus, yes, even with joy. Not the kind of joy that's like, yay, I'm suffering. But the kind of joy that sees immense, immeasurable meaning and depth in all things. So not only can he reimagine suffering, but he believes that this suffering is a direct consequence of his appointment as an apostle and teacher of the gospel. St. Augustine once said something to the effect that we cannot expect to follow Jesus and avoid the cross. Then we must take it up. We must follow even unto death. I've known those in my time as a priest who've, uh, who've joined up and, and been ordained, and all of a sudden they think, it's so hard. And I want to say, well, what'd you expect? You took up a cross. They think it'll be an easy way to be a Christian. It's not at all. This message that Paul is setting before Timothy is quite clear. That suffering is a consequence proper to following Jesus. The understanding, again, is that one who has been joined to Christ has possession of everything that properly belongs to him, including his suffering. We sort of want to put a footnote that says, well, maybe. No, Paul says, it does come and it will come. Martin Luther once compared this bond of the Christian to Christ to marriage stating that in baptism, a kind of marital bond is established in which the recipient, being truly repentant, receives all that belongs to Christ. 
Listen to that. We, we usually think that uh, to be repentant means that we'll avoid suffering. Martin Luther says, not so. Even if you're joined to Christ in this marital bond, and, and especially if you're repentant, he says, a man can with confidence boast in Christ and say, mine are Christ's living, doing, speaking, his suffering and dying, mine as much as if I have lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Let me, let me say that to you again. That the, one who, the one who has confidence in Christ will say this, will boast of this and say, Mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking, his suffering and dying. Mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all, possesses all that is his bride's, and she all that is his, for the two have all things in common because they are one flesh, so Christ and the church are one spirit. I've now learned this through six pregnancies, that as much as I'm not pregnant, I bear some of that. <laughs> some of the cravings even, some of the pains, some of the, I've got a pain in my back, I don't know why. It's because everything that belongs to my wife is mine, and we are one flesh. And everything that belongs to my Lord is mine. We are one flesh. In the midst of this suffering, the Christian remembers that Jesus Christ, in whom he has died, and even more has been raised, has abolished death and made death of no effect. Jesus has rather brought everlasting life to us, and not only that, but a kind of soundness, a purity of life that cannot be disrupted by suffering. Here's the message, friends. If we are convinced that the enemy death still reigns, suffering will be an utter disaster to us. It will knock us off course over and over again. It will cause us to despair even of heaven itself. But if we are convinced that death has been rendered useless and powerless in the resurrection of Jesus, suffering will actually serve to guard us to the day of resurrection as a seal upon our lives in Christ. As an assurance that he really does love and care for us. Are you in the midst of suffering today? The wonders of the marital embrace that is ours as Christians with our Lord Jesus Christ is that not only is what belongs to him belong to us, but what belongs to us belongs to him. You do not suffer alone. Jesus bears it as his own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 